You know, there's a funny thing about science and art. They have a lot of overlap. The people who turn out to have the largest impact in science are either iterists, you know, people who just like take something and they just incrementally move it along a little bit. And then there's other people who just make these, you know, discoveries that are sort of thinking outside the box. So today we are talking with Don McPherson. He is the inventor of Enchroma, which is a technology that has helped colorblind people uh, see for the first time color. And I am here with two students uh, because this is part of the Beautiful Thinkers podcast course, IU edition. So we are recording from the media school as we speak. And Don, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Let's start with um, you have had a very cross-pollinated journey of education. Could you just walk us through what your educational journey was? Okay, sure. I went to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, and got a multidisciplinary degree. It's called a Bachelor's of General Studies. Um, I focused on mathematics and art and astronomy. Although technically I think my degree is in math, art, and chemistry. But I was very interested in a lot of disparate, seemingly odd things like linguistics and spider biology and uh, plants and mushrooms and just everything across the board. I would pop into, I would sign up for classes that were um, most likely well above my pay grade, but I was able to successfully talk the professors into letting me take the classes. After a few years of that, I realized like, oh my God, I don't have a degree. So uh, <laughs> these guys professor, understand that I'm sure all too well. <laughs> yeah. And so this English professor, Edgar Wan, who was like kind of my mentor, um, said, oh, just get a general studies degree. I'll be your advisor. So that's what I did. And then after that, you went on to get your MFA? Um, no, actually, I. that's a funny question because I was planning to get an MFA. In fact, I drove my car from Ohio, where I lived, to upstate New York. It's kind of humorous. I was basing this on a completely out-of-date Barron's Profiles of American Colleges. that <laughs> said that, that Alfred University had an MFA program in glass sculpture. And I was, that was really where I was headed was to get, uh, just become a glass artist. And I went there and uh, I walked into this middle of summer, walked into the glass studio and Fred Cheetah, who was the teacher there, looked at me like I was nuts. He's like, you drove from Cleveland? We have phones, you know? And anyway, he said, no, we don't have an MFA program, but you might want to go up and talk to Vern Burdick in the engineering department. So I sat down and talked with him and he, they offered me a scholarship. It's kind of crazy. So I ended up getting a master's in ceramic engineering and then I stayed on and got my doctorate in glass science. So ceramic engineering, what is that exactly? It's basically understanding how inorganic materials 
behave. And were you able to delve into sculpture at all, or is this more the technical side of it? No, 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 (laughs) no. At that point, I was fully invested in getting, uh, studying the science. I kept telling myself that I would get back to it at some point in time. But uh, I had sort of a, a very wise father who kept telling me, you need something to fall back on. You should, you know, continue in engineering and science. And I happened to be reasonably good at it. You know, there's a funny thing about science and art. They have a lot of overlap. The people who turn out to have the largest impact in science are either iterists, you know, people who just like take something and they just incrementally move it along a little bit. And then there's other people who just make these, you know, discoveries that are sort of thinking outside the box. So I was kind of attracted to the prospect of that. And I really loved, ended up really totally getting invested into the whole theory of glass. What was glass? How was it formed? You know, it's called like the, another state of matter. It's a disorganized, which was kind of like I was at that time in my life. So I was, I was drawn to it. Um, and I still love glass. Have you ever thought about glass blowing? I blew glass. That was what I was studying when I was at Ohio University. I was doing printmaking and glass blowing. I think you, you raise an important point here with the idea of incremental shifts versus truly inventing things and taking more you know, wide swings at things. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, this is the Beautiful Thinkers podcast, but beautiful thinking really is people who look at things from multiple perspectives, the same problem, the same theme. And that's really what we're here to do with the uh, with the idea of saturated. Okay, just like a little interstitial, do you have any advice for these two people sitting at the table who are currently getting their undergraduate degrees on how they should think about what they do? I I did actually... After I postdoced in New Zealand, I took a job working at a Japanese optics company for two years, getting up at 6 a.m., taking BART, biking to work every day. You know, you can't miss a day. It's uh, you're doing somebody else's research ideas. I mean, I can do it, but after two years, I decided I wanted to give it my own try. So I started a, I started a glass company in Berkeley. Was able to actually explore a lot of the stuff I've, I've been thinking about for years. But, you know, you never know really where you're going to get taken. But, you know, the some famous saying about, uh, you know, life favors the prepared mind or something to that extent. Yeah. And I think that the pr- preparing your mind... Um, you know, I was watching something the other day and someone said, if you had a time machine and could go back, what would you do? And the person said, oh, I'd probably study harder. Which I thought it was really hilarious. Study harder? Yeah. Okay. I understand that. Because, <laughs> you know, really the, the, the inquiry into how things work is really, really one of the, the most beautiful things that anybody can get invested in. It doesn't matter what the field is, honestly. And I definitely have had a lot of luck. I've had a lot of people who, I'm not one of these people who believe that I did it all on my own. Thousands of people in the in the wings who have helped me get where I am. Yeah, I think that's true of everybody who's made it, the people that have helped them along the way. So um, the name of the company is very unique and different. Is there origin or background of how you created that name? 
Um, actually, that was my business partner at the time, who Andy Schmieder, who came up with that name. And it was just, it was kind of interesting. It's kind of a mix of Latin and Greek or something. It just worked. Kind of means with color or something like that. Um, the invention, I think the students were very drawn to you because this is another classic, like, invented by accident. Can you just take us through how it came to be? Well, okay. As I mentioned, I started a company making glass. Primarily, I was working on a lot of different projects. Um, I was getting funding from the National Institutes of Health for various ideas I had for scintillation glass glasses to make uh, more efficient mammography scans and things like that. I, I was all over the map, uh, infrared fiber optics for laser surgeries, things like that. And one of the things I, I invented was glasses that would help laser surgeons be able to protect their eyes while doing laser surgery, but with a better perception of what they were doing. The, the problem with the current laser at the time, the state-of-the-art laser safety eyewear were bright orange plastic. And the surgeons hated them. They said they gave them headaches. They couldn't differentiate tissue because everything just looked orange. And so I made some glass that uh, solved that problem by using what, what are called rare earth elements in these glasses. And I was able to block the laser wavelength that they were using while at the same time allowing them to differentiate tissue. And I found out through one of the laser medical companies I was selling eyewear to that um, surgeons were pilfering the eyewear, taking using them as sunglasses. Um, I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I started wearing them and I thought, oh, wow, these are, these are actually really good sunglasses because they made certain colors really jump out at you. They really saturated certain colors. And I was at a um, ultimate Frisbee tournament in Santa Cruz and one of my teammates borrowed my glasses and I didn't know this, but he was colorblind. And he said, dude, I can see the cones. And I started sort of being, you know, scientifically minded. I was like, what are you talking about, Mike? And he said, oh, I, without the glasses, the cones look the same color as the grass. And I said, what color is that? And he said, brown. He said, with the glasses on, I can see the gla grass is bright green and the cones are, it's like fluorescent. I mean, it was like pretty eye-opening, like what is going on here? So I started working on that idea and I read up and I knew nothing about color vision deficiency. Uh, and I got to a point where I felt pretty comfortable with this. Like I thought I had kind of understood why these particular glass formulations helped somebody who was colorblind. And I cold called a couple of top vision scientists in the country and sort of pitched it to them. And they said, yeah, that, that might work. So I submitted a grant to the National Eye Institute and they funded it. And I did clinical studies at UC Davis and UC Berkeley and you know, had some follow on, we had good results, had some follow on 
funding from the National Eye Institute. And in 2010, uh, that led to the launching of Enchroma as a company. So we had a good sound scientific underpinning. And based on that, we were able to raise some initial seed money. And did, did Mike know he was colorblind? Yeah, he knew he was colorblind. He was actually in the first clinical studies. And uh, yeah, he, he knows this. Most people who are colorblind find out in grade school um, when they miscolor things with crayons. People have often called the Crayola crayon set is the first color blindness test that kids ever have. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Were there any pushbacks or any challenges with the scientific proof? Well, the vision science community was very skeptical. And those were the people I wanted most to win over because although I was late into the field, that is, that is not having training in it, I considered them my peers. And so I wanted their approval. Luckily, uh, we ended up with two really renowned vision scientists on our science advisory board. And they were able to help me better understand what was going on with the eyewear and also uh, act, acted as liaisons to the vision science community so that uh, you know there was some explanation coming from their peers, which helped a lot. But even to this day, I have some people in the vision science community who still just don't, I don't know what it is, but they just don't, they don't, they don't like it. And in spite of overwhelming evidence demonstrating that the glasses work at a cortical level, um, there's still some pushback. But, you know, the, the whole thing about doing good scientific research is that, especially in, in psychophysics, you try to isolate effects. So th there was some pretty good science that was being done. It is a very complicated field because your perception has to be constructed from information that you receive from the outside world. And the way in which that happens is, is multi-step. And there's honestly, there's still large areas of the cortical mechanisms that are like terra incognito. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating area of science and I love it. There was a visual artist in England who really loved our glasses. He was colorblind and he invited a bunch of people to like an outdoor gathering. And he had taken a red can of spray paint and he'd written the word red on a trimmed hedge, right? And he wrote the word red in giant letters. People wouldn't, couldn't see the word red and they'd put the glasses on. They'd be like, oh my God says red. <laughs> it was so cool. And there's this really good video of this emergency room worker in Toronto who his friends got him gla these glasses. And it's just this homemade video of him walking around in the apartment, just kind of losing his mind at all the colors. At one point he looks around and he goes, look at the cow, man. And the camera swivels and it's really this kind of heinous painting of a cow and it's like modern art and it's all red. It just looks horrible. But for him, it was beautiful because he had never seen the red in it before. It's, it is an, it's an overwhelming emotional experience. And so for me, 
as somebody with normal color vision, I've be, I've been humbled by a lot of this because I've seen that that this is really uh, life changing for a lot of people, and I try not to take things that I see for granted because of things like that. What challenges do you think people face with color blindness? Yeah, I mean, there's occupational challenges. You, as you probably know, people who are color deficient are relegated to certain jobs. They can't do anything to do with first response. They can't fly airplanes. Yeah, I think that the big, big thing for, for me is trying to help people who have color deficiency so they can, you know, lead, lead a more complete life. In the military, there's over 10,000 job descriptions, and there's only a handful that you can do if you're color deficient. Something like that would be really beneficial if people could wear the glasses and, and pass color vision tests that would allow them to perform different jobs. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I know that there is a propensity for men to be colorblind more than women. Can you speak to that and, and why that is? There's a higher preponderance of men. It's about 8%. Pretty rare in women, around 0.5%. Maybe 350 million people worldwide. One of the things that first attracted me to working, trying to address pediatric colorblindness is, I, I read a paper a number of years ago in which they did a double blind study and they found out that when the teachers don't know and the students don't know, students can often be labeled as having learning disabilities, when in actuality, they just can't follow color-coded information very well. And when you only have 11 states testing for color vision deficiency, actually California tests for color vision deficiency, but they only test boys. Really? Yeah, and that leaves about 28,000 girls undiagnosed you think that public schools would want to have that information so they could teach more directed, but there's a lot of resistance to adding in new things like that. Would you mind talking a little bit about your colorblind accessibility program that you have at Enchroma? That was the brainchild of Kent Strebe, who's director of communications. He had this idea that we should get eyewear out and make them accessible to museums, libraries, schools, things like that. In fact, it's well adopted by state and federal park services, many, many universities. We have a lot of interesting ideas we're working with. So I just came back from Washington, DC. I was at a launch of our eyewear at the Smithsonian Museum, which was pretty amazing. You know, they have 38 museums under their umbrella and they're planning to get the eyewear into all their museums. It was pretty, pretty illuminating to see this group of colorblind people walk around and look at art. So the accessibility program has been good because it's a way for us to really expose people to what they've been missing. And surprisingly, you'd think that everyone who would be colorblind would know about Enchroma, but they don't. In fact, our, our penetration into what you might call the colorblind market is quite small. 
Um, so it looks like you've had a lot of accomplishments. Do you know what's next? Have any big plans or goals? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been asked to submit a proposal to the U.S. Army. I, I actually met in D.C. with them when I was there last week. The other thing that's interesting is the Americans with Disability Act this July finally recognized colorblindness as a disability. So that's huge because we've been wanting that to happen since we were formed. And there's another component of this that you asked what I'm going to, what I'm working on, what the future holds. Okay, so in 2019, there was a clinical study done at UC Davis. And what they did was really clever. They created these colored gratings. And a grading is just like something that goes light, dark, light, dark, or red, green, red, green. And they had them do a selection. They would show them a reference grading and they had to choose between two gradings and say which one is most like it. And from this, they were able to construct response curves to increasing contrast to color. And they said, okay, here's normal people and here's the color deficient. Look, it's about 40% of normal. And then they gave them the glasses and they had them go home keep a journal, wear the glasses, and they tested them over a two-week period. And this was just unbelievable. What happened was they brought them back and they retested them without wearing the glasses. And their scores improved. And it's like it started this whole flurry of interest in this. It's been followed up by a couple of other scientists who have demonstrated it, that there seems to be some sort of change at the cortical level that's conferred by the glasses. Yeah, that's a fascinating path to take. One of the things that we are trying to discuss is this theme of saturation. Obviously with you, it's really about color and and it's it's more of that kind of association. But just as somebody who's in this world, in this time, do you ever feel that we are saturated? Things are moving quickly. The society is fairly divided. We have a lot of, you know, media that is coming in. We have AI. There's deep fakes. There's just there's a lot of information coming at us, you know, and I think from your perspective, it's interesting because our brain tends to process this information on a visual level. Do you think that's changing? I mean, do you think that's changing the way we process the world? So there's a really brilliant, maybe the most brilliant vision scientist today is working at the University of Nevada, Reno. Mike Webster basically has this really interesting idea that we look at the world, we sample a scene and, and I hope I'm getting this right, but basically there's a, a mean value for the scene, right? If you added up all the pixels in a scene, well, it turns out to be more or less gray. And then there are things that are clearly stand out in the scene because they're highly saturated, right? Color saturated. And we notice the things in the scene first that are saturated beyond the variance of the mean. So you can basically think of the world as having a mean and a variance. 
And we notice the things that are outside the variance. That's what our eye is drawn to. You just look around the room, you can see what I'm talking about. When he first, when I first read this description of his, I was like, that is pretty profound because it doesn't just apply to color, it applies to everything. So the person who's yelling the loudest gets the attention. The person who's um, doing something outlandish gets the attention. There are people who have figured out that if you do something that's like outside the variance, it gets attention. And I think that that's the thing that we all have to recognize. Like we can't help it. Our minds are drawn to it. And we should just be careful because it's outside the variance. Yes, we look at it, but we shouldn't let that become the thing that we focus on. I think that in, in the context of certain things, it's probably a good idea to try to find stable, you know, neutral patterns and things and not be so attracted to the thing that's really out there. Last question that we ask everybody that we speak with is, this is a podcast that explores beautiful thinking. And we always ask people, how would you define beautiful thinking? That's really interesting because, you know, it's like Occam's razor, right? Mm -hmm. I saw a talk at the Optical Society of America Fall Vision meeting in Seattle two weeks ago, and it was by Andrew Watson, who's the head of, of vision at Apple. Absolutely fantastic guy. And he mentioned Occam's razor as sort of like the way that a lot of scientists work, right? It's like, given all the possible solutions, choose the one that's the most logical and requires the least handstands and backflips of logic, right? But then he modified and he said, he thinks that we should also follow Occam's cone, mm. which is choose, choose the solution that is the most beautiful. Because it will also you know, have contained within it simplicity. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. This episode was created and produced at the IU Media School as part of the Beautiful Thinkers podcast, IU edition. To follow along this season, check out at the Beautiful Thinkers on Instagram and TikTok. Special thanks to Michaela Bruins, Margot Klein, and Ayumu Nakajima for their research and recording of this episode, as well as thank you to Natalie Ingalls for our music.